0: All right, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. We've been in this sermon series through the Gospel of Mark, and we, we did it some last fall. We've returned to it starting in February, and this is now the third week in a row that we've been in Mark chapter 10, and I promise you the plan is to get through Mark chapter 10 today, so we can be in Mark 11 next Sunday. So I always encourage you to open your Bible, turn on your device, and follow along because that's how the lessons are designed. We're going to go through the text. Uh, The power in the message is always the Word of God, and so I encourage you to let the Word of God be powerful in your own life. And to follow what Tony said about this clock up here, uh, I actually forget that we have a clock up there. I don't usually look at it that often, so I won't go by that. But because it's, you know, spring ba- break Sunday and uh, spring forward, so some people are sleepy, some people are on trips, there's a few more gaps in the audience, which means I can, some of you don't look blurry today, I can actually see you, so I know if you're dozing off or you're sleeping, you know, so you can't get away with it today, it's a little bit thinner crowd. Uh, we're going to continue this study in Mark chapter 10, and we're going to look at a few things from Mark 10 in just a moment. As I prepared for this lesson, I came across a story about a church that they decided to open their doors every day of the week. They called it their sanctuary, we called it an auditorium, but they opened their doors so that people could come in and pray. They would not turn the lights on in their auditorium, so it was a nice dimly lit setting And people could come in and pray individually and spread out throughout the auditorium. And the minister noticed that there was a couple that would come in every single day. And they would sit right over there in the corner um, and they would pray silently for over an hour. So this minister was really impressed with this couple. They were consistent. They were coming every day. They were focused because they were so silent and so quiet during the hour that they were there. And then one day, the janitor was over there doing some cleaning, doing it quietly so he wouldn't disturb anybody's prayer time, and he noticed that right beside where they were sitting, uh, the outlet was being used, and there was a, a phone plugged into the outlet, or the white cord was plugged into the outlet going to their lap. So they did some examination, and they realized that the reason this couple was coming in every day was so that they could charge their phones and take a nap. Apparently, they were homeless, and they needed a place to charge their phones and take a nap. So the minister was a little disappointed because he thought, I thought their motives were pure. I thought they were here to silently pray and be focused, but turns out they were here for different motives, different reasons, different intentions. He let them keep coming because he felt like that was the Jesus thing to do because that's what they needed, but their motives were a lot different than what he thought their motives were. So this morning, I'm going to kind of talk at, think about, direct us in the direction of our motives, and really this is kind of an inward, inner struggle of what our motives really are. What is your motive in coming today? What is your motive in following Jesus? And even more specifically, what is your motive when you come before God in prayer? In my own life, my own prayer life has gone through some change the last few years, and I've shared that with you through sermons over the last year or so. And my own prayer life has gone through a little deconstruction and reconstruction as I learn as an adult how to pray and what that looks like. And so the text that we're looking at this morning from Mark chapter 10, I'm looking at it with a slant towards prayer. It's not necessarily about prayer, but I do want to look at it with a slant towards prayer. And to kind of set it up, I want to just highlight something real quick from the two stories we're combining and looking at this morning. And the the first one is a story about James and John coming up to Jesus. And in verse 36 of chapter 10, Jesus says to them, What do you want me to do for you? Imagine Jesus asking that. What do you want me to do for you? James and John respond to that, and they say, Elevate our status. Give us power. Let us sit at your right or your left when you're in your glory. And to that answer, Jesus said, wrong answer. They were wrong. Okay? Later in chapter 10, Jesus asks the same question. What do you want me to do for you? This time, he's asking it to Bartimaeus, this blind man. And Bartimaeus responds to Jesus' question. He says, I want my sight back. I want to be able to see. And to that answer, Jesus says, ding, 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 like that's the right answer. James and John give the wrong answer. So Jesus, in Mark chapter 10, asks this question twice. And he gets two different answers. James and John were wrong, and Bartimaeus was right. So with their answers to the same question, I'm thinking, what's the difference? Why is one right and one's wrong? Is it their words that they used, their tone of voice? Did they have some sort of magic saying and, and Bartimaeus just happened to have the right magic saying? No, none of that. I think the difference in their answer to Jesus' question, what do you want me to do for you? I think the difference is their motive behind the question. And we're going to look into that a little bit more during this lesson. But our, our scripture reading this morning was about motives when it comes to prayer. That was from James chapter 4, which Jeremy read this morning. In James chapter 4, the second, the the end part of verse 2, he says, you do not have because you do not ask God. Well, that's language of prayer, asking God. And then in James 4, verse 3, he says, when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives. Or some translations say, you ask wrongly, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. So James, alluding to prayer here, says you don't have because you don't ask, and then when you do ask, you don't receive because you're asking with the wrong motives. Because whatever it is that you're asking God for, you're treating God, I guess, like a vending machine, like just give me what I want. And he's saying you're just wanting it to spend whatever it is you want, whatever it is you're asking for, you're asking it for your own pleasures. That's the motive behind it. So maybe if you're thinking about your own life right now and you're thinking about prayer, maybe you're thinking, well, what if I just have better motives? Then I'll get what I want. But we can't trick ourselves into having better motives to still try and get whatever it is we want. That's not how it works. We can't outsmart God. We can't outsmart ourselves. So what does James mean by the wrong motives? And how do you have better motives or correct motives when it comes to approaching God in prayer? And I would say having the right motives takes time and cultivation. So we follow Jesus. I'm learning more and more that I believe prayer is about communing with God. It's about coming before God with requests, but prayer is also about formation. I've mentioned that before. It's about being formed into the life and the teachings and the image of Jesus about following this kingdom life that Jesus laid out for us. Prayer is a lot about that. There was a guy who, a businessman who worked in the service industry, and most days he worked behind a counter, and he had to deal with angry customers on a daily basis, and he said that these customers could be so ugly and so rude, they would point their finger, they would yell at him, they would grit their teeth, say awful things to him, be really aggressive towards him, and he was tired of being treated like that. And he said one day a woman came in, and she was yelling at him and just being really mean, and he just thought to himself, she looks so goofy. If only she could see herself. And then it dawned on him, what if I bought a mirror and put it behind me, and people could actually see themselves? So he went out, he bought a mirror, and he said that from then on out, the customers calmed down. Like when people started to yell at him or grit their teeth or get angry, and they could see themselves in the mirror They would calm down and they would slow down and stop yelling at him as much. It's a good idea if you work behind a counter. Maybe you should consider getting a mirror. But prayer can work a lot like that. If we're reflecting on our own life, our own prayer life, and we're honest about it, prayer can work like a mirror. It can reflect our attitudes and our motives. So let's take a closer look at this story from Mark chapter 10. Start The two stories we're looking at today, James and John, is where that starts. And oddly enough, the James in Mark chapter 10 is not the same James from what we just read from just a moment ago. But they come up to Jesus in chapter 10 and verse 35, and the first thing they say is, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. A while back, my daughter said to me, dad, say yes to what I'm about to ask you. And I said, uh, no, I will say yes or no depending on what you ask me. So James and John come up to Jesus and they're like, we want you to go ahead and say yes before we even ask it. They're trying to manipulate Jesus. Go ahead and agree to this. And with a slant towards prayer, how often do we approach prayer that way? God, we want you to go ahead and say yes. We'll ask it, right? but we want what it is that we want. So Jesus comes with this question that we're looking at this morning. What do you want me to do for you? And their response is, Grant it, that we may sit at your right or at your left when you come into your glory. So that's what they're wanting. Jesus has already predicted three times, Mark 8, Mark 9, Mark 10, that when they get to Jerusalem, he's going to be rejected, he's going to suffer, he's going to die, and on the third day he will rise again. And they have completely misunderstood the three passion predictions. See, James and John are still picturing in their mind an earthly kingdom. They're still thinking that when they get to Jerusalem, they're going to overthrow the Romans, Jesus is going to claim that throne, and we're going to be his right and his left hand men. That's what they're wanting. In Mark chapter 9, Jesus goes up on the mountain and he's transfigured before them. Peter, James, and John go with him. So they're part of what we sometimes call the inner three. And maybe they misunderstood the transfiguration and they're thinking, well, if we could just cut Peter out, we'll be the two guys. And Mark just has James and John coming, but if you look at the equivalent to this in the Synoptic Gospels in Matthew 20, it's James and John and their mom who come to Jesus requesting this. And I don't know, I've always just thought, wouldn't that be a little bit embarrassing? These guys getting their mom to come and do the bidding for them. Give us this special request. We come to you secretly. Let us sit at your right. Or you're left. And so Jesus responds and he says, You don't know what you're asking. You don't understand what you're asking. And again, looking at this with a slant towards prayer, I wonder how often that's true. We come before God and we have requests, we have things that we desire and that we want God to bless or to give us. And maybe that's the response that we don't really fully know what we're asking. We can't see things from God's perspective. That's why sometimes we struggle when we feel like we get a no to something that we've been requesting for a long time. So Jesus responds with his own questions, as Jesus often does, and he says, can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink, or can you be baptized with the same baptism I will be baptized with? What does he mean by that? What is this cup that he's talking about? Well, the cup, I believe, is the suffering that's about to take place. You know, when Jesus is praying in Mark 14, and he's praying right before he's betrayed and crucified, you probably are familiar with this prayer, but Jesus says, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me, referring to the cup of suffering that's about to take place, and he says, but not my will, but yours be done. So his desire was to take the cup from him, but he knows that if he's got to go through with it, he will because he's going to be obedient to that. Can you drink the same cup that I'm going to drink? Can you be baptized with the same baptism? That's kind of an odd example. If you're following in the Gospel of Mark, in Mark chapter 1, Jesus was baptized by John. So why is he referring to baptism again? Probably in, a, in the form of an analogy, I guess, a metaphor, Jesus is referring to more of the suffering and the cross and how he's going to go under the waters of death after the crucifixion. And he's asking James and John, can you take on this same form of suffering? Can you be baptized with the same baptism? And early Christians understood their baptism in this way. We understand baptism in this way. It's what Paul talks about in Romans chapter 6. That there's a death that takes place to our old self and we're baptized and when we go under the water, we're buried just like Jesus was buried and then we come up out of the water and just like Jesus raised from the dead and he comes out of the tomb. And so Jesus invites James and John, can you drink this cup? Can you be baptized with this baptism? And they very boldly say, we are able, we can do it. And Jesus says, you will. That's true. That's true. You will drink this cup. You will be baptized with this baptism. But to sit in my right or my left, that's not up for me to decide. That's for those for whom it's been prepared. And we know that in his glory, when Jesus gets to Jerusalem, he is crucified. And there is someone on his right and on his left. And Jesus tells them, you will drink the cup. You will have the same baptism. You will suffer with me. And we know that James becomes the first martyr for the faith in Jesus in Acts chapter 12. We know that John lives a long time, but that John suffers a lot of persecution. So this conversation that they have with Jesus, I think they're still a little confused, but it doesn't go the way they thought it would go. They get the question, "What do you want me to do for you?" and their response is wrong. Their motive is wrong. And so Jesus uses this as a teaching opportunity because he's a brilliant teacher. The disciples find out about it and they're indignant. They're mad and they should be. And I think they're mad not just because James and John were being sneaky. I think they're mad because they didn't think to ask the question first. Because they also want to be elevated. They've already been arguing about who which one of them is the greatest. So Jesus uses this as a teaching opportunity to talk about leadership and what leadership looks like in the kingdom of God, these upside-down values. Not power over, but power under. And there's really two main styles of leadership that Jesus is dealing with here, and it makes me think of these two expeditions that took place. One was in 1913, and one was in 1914. The one in 1913 was headed towards the North Pole, and it was led by a guy named Stephenson. The expedition in 1914... They were headed south to Antarctica, and it was led by a guy named Ernest Shackleton, which maybe sounds a little more familiar. Both expeditions suffered a life or death situation. They they got trapped out in the sea, surrounded by ice, and had a very difficult time breaking that ice to continue on. So when they're stuck out in the ocean, no one to rescue them, they start running low on food and water. They're freezing. And it's a life or death situation. The expedition in 1913 that was headed north, when they were put in this situation, their leader, this guy named Stephenson, he was kind of a cutthroat, whatever it takes. The lives of his crew members were secondary compared to the mission that was at hand. And so that's how he led, and that flowed out to his crew members. And then 11 guys died on that expedition and they shouldn't have. But his main focus was success. His main focus was getting there, even if it meant people had to die. That was his style of leadership. He had a lot of power, and he abused it. But the other expedition in 1914, led by Ernest Shackleton, had a very different story. It was a very different style of leadership. He cared about his crew members, In fact, he made sure that all of his crew members had the mittens and the boots that they needed to stay warm, even if it meant he went without. He made sure that everybody had an equal amount of food rations, and he didn't take more food than the rest of his men, or water, like he was equal with them, even though he had the power to take more. He would stay up late at night and take the longest night watches so that his men could sleep. That was his style of leadership, sacrificial style of leadership. And that flowed out to his crew members. And from the way the story goes, they all survived. Two different expeditions, similar life or death situations, two totally different outcomes because there's two totally different styles of leadership. And what Jesus is dealing with with James and John here, and, and really the culture that he's surrounded with, is there's two styles of leadership. There's the Roman way or the worldly way, or the kingdoms of this earth that way. But then there's also the kingdom of God, and the way of the kingdom of God, the way that Jesus has been laying out. And James and John make the mistake of following the wrong examples. James and John, with their request, they want to follow the Roman way. Let's, look, let's read this passage from Mark 10, pick it up in verse 42. Jesus called them and said, You know that among the Gentiles, probably specifically the Romans, those whom they recognize as their rulers lord it over them, and their great ones are tyrants over them. That's that power over style of leadership. But it is not so among you. Whoever wishes to become great among you must be your servant. Whoever wishes to be first among you must be slave of all. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So he says there's two styles of leadership and we're not going to lead like the leaders of the Gentiles do, where they lord it over people under them. He said that's not how we operate. The way we operate is we serve. If you want to be great, become a servant. Want to be first, become a slave of all. And that's what Jesus came to do, not to be served, but to serve. And then we get the ransom theory, which we talked about last month. Gives his life up as a ransom for many. So, the best thing that Jesus could give to James and John was not to grant their power request, but to give them insight into the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus is trying to continually give them. He's, he's trying to paint this picture for them, he's trying to give them this kingdom vision. Life in the kingdom of God, for us, it's the same. It's not about who has the strongest personality. Who has an agenda and can push that agenda the hardest? And who's the most aggressive? That's not how it works. Jesus says, if you want to lead, become a servant. And he's preparing James and John and the other disciples to lead the early church. If you read the book of Acts, we see their style of leadership. And this is what Jesus was laying out for them. So James and John respond to the question, what do you want me to do for you? And their answer is incorrect, and Jesus uses it as a teaching opportunity. And then in the rest of chapter 10, we have another blind man named Bartimaeus, and he gives the correct response. But I should point out, before we look at the story of Bartimaeus, that there's only two blind men in the Gospel of Mark who are healed. The first one took place in Mark chapter 8, where this section began. In Mark chapter 8, there's a blind man, and he wants to see, and so Jesus spits in his eyes and does this stuff, and then he says, what do you see? And the first blind man says, well, I see people, but they look like trees. So then Jesus does it again, and then finally he can see clearly. Well, what's that all about? What's that display? If Jesus can heal people with just a word, why does he have to do all this? Why didn't it work the first time? Well, most people believe, and I believe, that really what Jesus is doing is he's using that as a metaphor for how the disciples respond to his kingdom vision. The disciples see things kind of like that first blind man. They see people, but they look like trees. They're not seeing clearly. I asked Jessica earlier in the week, do you have any examples? Can you think of any examples of not seeing clearly? And She said, yeah, every time I take off my glasses. It's blurry. That's what it looks like. And for the disciples, they're not physically blurry, but they're just not picking up on this vision that Jesus is laying out for them. And we see that through James and John. So the second blind man that's healed in Mark is Bartimaeus from Mark chapter 10 right here. And he sees clearly right away. Let's start in verse 46 and read through this. They came to Jericho, and he and his disciples and a large crowd were leaving Jericho, Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus or Timaeus or however you would pronounce that, that's the last time I'm going to try. Uh, He's a blind beggar. He's sitting by the roadside. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And apparently other people in the crowd didn't like his aggressive nature towards Jesus. So verse 48, many sternly ordered him to be quiet. But he cried out even more loudly, Son of David, have mercy on me. And I have mentioned before, I did a sermon back in the summer uh, using Luke 18 as the example. The blind man is healed there and he says, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. And then earlier in Luke 18, we have the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee. And the tax collector beats his chest and he says, Have mercy on me, a sinner. So in Christian tradition, this has become known as the Jesus prayer. Or a spiritual discipline that some practice is called the breath prayer. It's just a one-sentence prayer. And they combine what Bartimaeus is saying and what the tax collector said in his prayer. And it's just, breathe in Jesus, Son of God, and breathe out, have mercy on me, a sinner. So Bartimaeus doesn't know it here, and as he's shouting out towards Jesus... He gives an example of a type of prayer that many people will pray for thousands of years to come, but he's just shouting out, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. When he says, Son of David, that means he believes Jesus is the Messiah. He believes that Jesus comes through the bloodline of David. He already has faith. Verse 49, Jesus stood still. If You notice, we studied through Mark, like when the little children come up to Jesus The disciples want them to go away and leave Jesus alone, but often Jesus says, no, bring him here. So Jesus stood still and said, call him here, or more literally, call him. This is an invitation language. This is discipleship language. Just like Jesus says, follow me to Peter, James, John, Andrew, Levi. Just like we looked at last week with the rich young ruler earlier in Mark chapter 10, where Jesus says, there's one thing you lack. Go sell your possessions, give to the poor, then come follow me. It's the same invitation. Call him. Invitation language. And they called the blind man saying, take heart, take heart, get up. He's calling you. Literally, if we were translating that, it would be rise. Get up, rise, he's calling you. So look at this, throwing off his cloak, which in the ancient world was a symbol of death, throwing off your cloak. He sprang up and he came to Jesus. You can just sense the excitement. He can't see physically, but he jumps up, and I don't know if he runs to Jesus or what that looks like, but he is excited that Jesus has invited him. And Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? So there we have that question again. What do you want me to do for you? The blind man said to him, My teacher, let me see again. And Jesus said to him, Go, your faith has made you well. Immediately he regained his sight and followed him on the way. The word made you well or healed is this Greek word sozo. And it's used throughout Mark to mean uh, healing or saved. And Mark uses this same Greek word sozo for both physical healing and spiritual healing. So, not only is Bartimaeus healed physically and he can now see, right, but he's also healed spiritually. And his life has changed. He'll never be the same, and he follows Jesus along the way. I had a professor named Dr. Michael Martin when I took the Gospel of Mark. I did a short time at Lubbock Christian. And he said that Bartimaeus is an example of perfect discipleship. I don't know if I like that word perfect, but maybe he's a model disciple. If you look at the progression of what takes place, he said we're all blind beggars calling out to Jesus as Messiah or Savior, and he calls us, and he's always calling us. For those who are outside of Christ, he's calling you. For those of you who have been following Jesus for a long time, he's still calling you. We rise, just like Bartimaeus, I say rise, and we die. He throws off his cloak, symbolizing death. Jesus invites us to die to ourselves, to join him in baptism. So we die, we go to Jesus, he saves us, and then he lets us see, and we follow him along the way. So Bartimaeus, unlike the first blind man who was healed, Bartimaeus can see right away, and he's the model example of what discipleship should look like. And then that's the last healing that's recorded in the Gospel of Mark. There was a young girl who was applying to go to college. She really wanted to go to this college, and she was going through the application, and one of the questions on the application was, are you a leader? And when she read that, her heart sank because she thought, I'm not a leader, but I want to get into this college, but I want to be honest. So she put, no, I'm not a leader. She finished the application, she sent it off, and she thought, I'm not going to get accepted to this college, because what they're looking for is leaders. But to her surprise, a few weeks later, she received an acceptance letter in the mail. So she was really excited. She opened it up, and they were approving her. She got accepted to this college, but they left her a little note and it said, Dear applicant, this year we will have 1,452 new leaders coming to campus. We felt like we needed at least one follower. (laughs) Out of 1,453 students accepted, she was the only one that was honest and said, No, I'm not a leader. They said, We need at least one follower, and at least she's honest. But I look at Bartimaeus, and I look at her own life, I look at what Jesus teaches about leadership in the kingdom of God, and we're all followers. All of us. We follow Jesus along the way, just like Bartimaeus hops up and he follows Jesus along the way. Whether we're in a leadership position, whether it's at church or in life, whether we are longtime Christians or we're not, whether we're trying to be disciples or whether It's just our prayer life, as I mentioned, looking at this with a slant towards prayer. We're all followers. We're all learners. We're all following Jesus along the way. And as I've heard people say before, we can't go at a faster pace than what Jesus is leading in. Because we're following Jesus. We're always followers in this journey. So Jesus asked this question, what do you want me to do for you? He asked it to James and John. And their response is, elevate me, give me power, give me status. He asks the question, what do, you want me to do, what do you want me to do for you to Bartimaeus? And he says, I just want to see. So if Jesus were asking you that question today, what do you want me to do for you? How would you answer it? What would you ask for and why would you ask for it? Whether you're asking for a new job or a new car or a new home or maybe you're asking for healing or maybe it's something deep within your soul that you're asking God for. Those are all things that we should pray about, but what is our motive behind our prayers? Are we looking for self-advancement, or are we looking for kingdom advancement? James and John were looking for self-advancement, and they were in the wrong, and the point is we need to look for kingdom advancement. The invitation that Jesus gives Bartimaeus is the invitation he gives all of us, We rise, he calls us, we die to ourselves. For some of you who have not been baptized into Christ, maybe that's the next step for you, is to join Jesus with baptism and we follow Jesus along the way. And he lets us see clearly. He lets us see clearly what life is all about. He lets us see clearly along the way so that we can truly follow him. Now before we offer this invitation, because I've mentioned prayer over and over in the sermon, I thought it might be appropriate to go before God in prayer right now. So if you would, let's pray. Father, we come before you today and we just ask that your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, we're we're people that need you. We rely on you and and I hope that we pray to you every day that everybody in this room, their prayer life will increase. But Lord, I pray that as we come before you that you will strengthen us and make us more like you. That our heart, our desire for life, our drive, the things that we do, that what we have in mind is your kingdom and your glory. Help us to be those types of people. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you have any need this morning, we're gonna have some shepherds around the room. You can grab one of them and pray with them privately. You can come up front if you have any needs. We're gonna invite you to stand right now. We'll continue a time of worship.